All right, welcome to episode number eight of the Kevin Rook Show. The other day I had a chance to sit down with John Carvalho. He is the CEO of a company called Synonym. And Synonym has been building in stealth mode for the better part of two years, but recently unveiled their product offering at uh, the Adopting Bitcoin conference in El Salvador back in November. And there's a ton of stuff that Synonym is building. This is one of the most ambitious projects that I've seen in the Lightning Bitcoin kind of space. And they're even building projects that go beyond the scope of Bitcoin and Lightning. Um, they've got a Lightning service provider. They're building a mobile wallet. They're building a new protocol called Slash Tags that will help uh, invent this next era of the web without any blockchain or, or token required. Um, they're building some really cool stuff. And so in this conversation, um, we dove into all the details of how each project is going to work, um, Synonym's rollout schedule and, and their plan and their roadmap for the next few months. I'd love to hear from you guys what you find to be the most interesting or what you think will be the most impactful project that Synonym is working on because they've got a handful of them. Um, so if you guys are on Lightning Podcasting apps, you can download Fountain to listen to this episode. Um, shoot me a message. I'd love to hear from you and, and hear what you think will be the most impactful product that Synonym is building. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. John, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, really excited to chat with you. And maybe a good starting point here, before we get into all the things you're building, um, is to talk about your background in Bitcoin and Lightning. What first got you excited about building on Bitcoin? Um, well, I've been in Bitcoin for about nine years now. Um, I would say I first started kind of, I guess, building on Bitcoin um, before I worked at BitRefill. This was maybe, uh, you know, four or five years ago um, when I started to help this small project that was doing a video streaming website that was using Bitcoin as the main payment method for tipping and such. Um, and so we had Exotica and we had, which, which was like the adult uh, version of the website and we had Autica, which was like the non-adult version. Um, and so we were trying to build a video platform and that was kind of my first foray into doing like a startup um, in the tech space, at least and in the Bitcoin space, at least. Um, and it didn't really go so well. Um, I learned a lot, but in the end, um, my partner didn't really come through for me and I had to make a decision about whether to uh, try to like raise money and do the whole startup thing and, you know, and go down that route because we were kind of just paying for it ourselves at that point or just to get a job. And so I ended up getting a job at BitRefill and at BitRefill is where I actually kind of amped things up a lot with like being interested in what more could be built with Bitcoin, what point, you know, what use cases Lightning was actually good for that people were not quite understanding and, you know, trying to promote, I, I was promoting Lightning Network a lot while I was at BitRefill. And then, as I mentioned in some of my other interviews, um, while I was at BitRefill, I started to see a lot of um, other ways that people were using, you know, gift cards and using tokens and just using, you know, um, Bitcoin in actual day-to-day -day kind of circular economy use cases and not just, you know, as a store of value or as a way to kind of try to get rich by being early on, you know, the, this new money. Um, so yeah, while I was at BitRefill, I started coming up with like some product ideas for BitRefill and then I just kept coming up with more and more and more and it kind of turned into like a whole, uh, thing. And so I ended up leaving BitRefill to start the new company with Heather to basically attempt to 
you know, model the whole ecosystem of what it would actually look like if we had like the Bitcoin world that we all are imagining will that we'll have someday where like Bitcoin is like the only and primary blockchain. Everybody is using it as the main store of value. And we're kind of operating in a society where government no longer has the same you know regulatory control that it used to, the same power over money that it used to, um, where big tech doesn't have the same power over everybody with their walled gardens like they used to, where big banks don't have custody of everything like they used to. Like if we have this hyper Bitcoinized world, what does it actually look like? How does that econ economy actually function? And how are people actually like living free in an ideal digital you know, social economy? And so basically that's what we, what we do as Synonym is we're trying to basically fill in all the gaps of what that kind of ecosystem software wise and service wise in, in this network would look like and make sure that it exists so we can actually you know, get to that point someday. Interesting. Can you describe the thought process of like how you learned that all these things could be built on Bitcoin? Because I think in, in the broader crypto ecosystem, the common thought has been always like, oh, we can't build this on Bitcoin. We have to go somewhere else. And I think you're pushing back against that and saying, no, we can build it, build all this stuff on Bitcoin. How has your thought process evolved? And what do you think the difference is between what you're thinking about and what the rest of the crypto ecosystem still kind of believes? I would say, in some ways, some of these values are values that I've had, and people at least that, that started in Bitcoin that were like in, in our circles. We've had these these feelings for a long time. Basically, that like you know that blockchains are are scams, and you know blockchains don't scale, and you wouldn't you shouldn't use them for anything other than as like an abstracted money or stored value system like Bitcoin. Um, that, but then there's also that like shitcoins try to portray like basic software use cases and basic like network use cases they try to portray these as innovations by attaching a coin to them and that's another thing that you know i just don't agree with and so you know the easiest way i can put it as far as like how we were able to kind of figure out that what things could be done using only Bitcoin or just not using a blockchain at all and just pairing it with Bitcoin as a user experience um, was just to accept these limitations was just to say, look, like don't use any blockchains. Like this is why you don't normally see like design principles on a website for a company, but it's why it's a whole section of our, of our website because we use these as rules. And I have found that when you accept, you know, certain rules as limitations, when you're designing things, it actually frees you to design actual solutions with what's left over. You know, if you just accept, okay, I can't use extra blockchains, so I, I'm not gonna use side chains, I'm not gonna use shit coins, you know, I'm like what's left and, what, and you have to end up in reinforcing your model as to why you would only use Bitcoin. And you have, you basically end up like understanding that if we can't do this all on Bitcoin and as the first use case, the rest of it is a waste of time. Like, you know, so what if you can make a new blockchain as a simulation and show some use cases with blockchain. It doesn't mean that we needed to do it or that it actually improves anything. And a lot of a lot of this, I, I know I'm ranting a little bit at this point. Um, a, lot, a lot of the altcoin industry just is, is basically a premise on this, where they just they they want to have a narrative that is extra Bitcoin, you know, something that Bitcoin the narrative that Bitcoin doesn't currently use, and they want to say we do this and Bitcoin doesn't do that. And so that therefore we're the better upgraded version of Bitcoin. 
but almost invariably, like 99% of those things and those use cases, you just don't need a blockchain for them at all. Like, and, and so that's one thing we're trying to show with, for example, with slash tags, we are trying to show like the whole web three, you know, model of like using tokens to do to somehow represent like network aspects of the web. Um, it's total bullshit. You don't need it for IDs. You don't need it for accounts. You don't need it for encrypted chat. You don't need it for storage. You just do not need a blockchain for any of that stuff. And so we're basically saying, okay, like we want to, to prove it. We want to show, you know, when we say, hey, don't use shit coins or you don't need a blockchain for that. Here's how you do it without it. And we, I think Bitcoiners were failing on that level for the past few years where we were just telling people, no, don't do that. But we weren't telling them what to do instead. Right. There's a lot I want to dig into here. Uh, this is really a great starting point. But let's frame this conversation in the context of like what you're building right now first. So everyone has a high level understanding. Can you talk to me about the structure of Synonym, what the project is to you? the relationship with Tether, the, the projects that kind of like are living underneath Synonym, the, the different um, verticals there. And yeah, just the, the overall vision for the project, I guess, would be would be helpful for listeners. Sure. Um, so the overall structure of Synonym is basically we've set it up to be a production oriented company for now. So basically, um, we are a Tether owned company, Tether Holdings owned company. Um, so we're not a normal, typical startup where we've like raised, you know, some sum of money and we're trying to like, you know, continue to raise money and justify raising more money until we show, uh, you know, validity. We're actually just an, a, another part of the, of the family of companies of Bitfinex and Tether. And we're just basically, a, this company is focused on making Bitcoin products and only Bitcoin products. Basically, our, our charge is to design an ecosystem that the only blockchain involved is Bitcoin and, and still somehow come out with a self-sovereign web and, you know, all of the kind of... Uh, hyper Bitcoinized, you know, social economy, you know, uh, paradigm that people would expect. Um, and so we do, you know, kind of share resources with the other companies as well, because we're like part of them. So like we, we don't have our own legal team. We don't have our own HR team. We use the HR team and legal team from the other companies. So this way we mostly focus on our products. We don't focus on a lot of the kind of day to day sort of stuff that a company might normally have to. Um, and so that's something a little bit different about the structure of the company. And also another big difference is on the product side, and I'll get into a quick overview of the products shortly. Um, on the product side, we aren't just like only building protocols or only building media middleware or only building apps. Like we're building, we're trying to like show what's, ne what's needed and build what's needed, but also demonstrate how to, you know, uh, how to apply this technology. And so we're making slash tags and then we're showing how to apply slash tags within typical app environments like a wallet. Um, we're making web platforms. We're making, um, you know, the, the block tank server. So I, I guess to, to be more specific, our product stack is we have block tank, which is the LSP service. It's just basically a, an API service and a web widget that will allow people to configure and purchase and automate the purchase of channels within their own platforms. And so if you wanted to like add the ability to, for your users to like buy new channels and manage their channels, you could use this API uh, that we have that we're, that we're providing called Block Tank. 
Um, this is just a way to make it easier for people to add lightning to their systems and to their applications. And this is something that any application will be able to use, right? Is that the idea? Um, not any application because it's a business service. Um, our, one unique thing about our company is we do not serve the USA. And so anything that we actually provide a service ourselves for will not be available to USA entities. And so block tank specifically is one of those things since it is a paid service. Um, it's, it's, we, we don't do business in the U S and so that, that specifically won't work for us apps. Um, we will, however, open source block tank, um, once we've, you know, ironed everything out. So now I would say maybe in six months or so we'll open source it. Um, so other people could run block tank, like say in the U S or such. Um, but we won't be, we won't be providing services in the U S. Interesting. But prim primarily the, the target audience is going to be applications over individuals for block tank, correct? Yes. For block tank. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we will have a web page version where you'll, be, where, you, where you'll be able to buy channels, like just as an individual, um, again, if you're not in the U S <laughs> um, but, um, there will be limits on that because it's not, it, it, I don't want to do like AML KYC for everybody just to be able to buy channels. And so there will be like, you know, uh, kind of weekly or monthly, whatever limits per node on how much they can actually buy with, you know, not through the API, but yeah, we will, we will have a normal service for, you know, non apps and non businesses to be able to, to access these, this liquidity as well. Um, you just won't be able to do it through the API. Makes sense. Okay. So block tanks is the first product. And then I know you have a few others. What are the next two kind of? So the next one, I would say, uh, we, we haven't announced the name of it yet, but would probably be our wallets. We're making a mobile wallet as well as a Chrome extension wallet of the same kind of flavor. Um, these wallets are meant to demonstrate all of the other stuff that basically the utility belt for the whole ecosystem. So the wallets will support Bitcoin, will support Lightning, will support tokens on Lightning, and they'll support slash tags accounts and slash tags contacts. And so this will basically be a way for you for you to use your wallet as you know to manage your keys for more than just your Bitcoin. You can manage your keys now for your tokens and for your web accounts as well. Interesting. So this managing for your web accounts may be something like a password manager. Is that is that the idea? Pretty similar, yeah. Um, longer term, we will probably will want to make a dedicated password manager product that uses slash tags, but it's kind of premature to do that right now. We, we need more adoption of the format before we can justify making a whole dedicated app for it. But that's the idea, is that you can use Bitcoin keys without using the Bitcoin blockchain um, to be able to establish these key pairs as accounts and, and manage your keys using the same wallet that you would manage your Bitcoin keys for. Interesting. And so, so this wallet, I, I believe, is entirely non-custodial. Um, are there any other properties that make it different from what you might find in a in a typical like Lightning wallet today, other than the the uh, the web account? Sure. Um, so on the Bitcoin side, this is not unique. Um, somebody else released a similar feature uh, recently. Um, they, they beat us to it, but. Um, we have, uh, for Bitcoin, we have this kind of boost user experience where basically um, we fully integrated all of the kind of ways you might want to interact with uh, RBF and CPFP, which are two ways of like speeding up transactions um, on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so we've, we've put an interface for this, but um, Simple Bitcoin Wallet has already done a similar user experience in their wallet, if you want to get an idea of what I'm talking about. But we're basically doing a very similar thing. Um, you know, 
we we had the idea independently, but they did beat us to releasing that feature. Um, but that would give you an idea of something somewhat unique um, about the Bitcoin part of the wallet. For Lightning, um, we've basically entirely rethought the user experience and fully integrated the kind of send and receive flow with Block Tank. So this app, our, our wallet app, is another demonstration of how a wallet could integrate with Block Tank to provide like better user experiences for basically like in line while the user is using their app, you know, the, the, the block tank API can be sensitive to what their needs are. So basically like if you're trying to pay an invoice on lightning, but you don't have enough liquidity, the app can automatically tell you, you know, you need to buy a new connection and here's how much it would cost you to approve. So you can just keep doing what you're trying to do. So it's basically an improved user experience for lightning that we think is pretty unique. Um, I don't know if we've 100% solved the Lightning UX yet, but I do think we're at least making progress towards it um, that has not been made in other wallets yet. Um, then we also have another unique aspect of Lightning is we'll have tokens on Lightning. Um, so that will probably be a first. I doubt, I doubt anyone will release that before us, although you can. We do have the code for Omnibolt, which we're using for Lightning tokens, is open source, um, and anybody else can use it as well. And we've released our code, our, our JavaScript library for that as well, if anybody's interested in playing with it. Um, but yeah, that's, so that's another unique aspect is we have the tokens on Lightning. And then the other unique stuff is the slash tag stuff, that which, which we already covered. We're doing the accounts, and we're also using it for contacts. But there's extra user experience in there where um, we have this aspect called slash tags feeds, which you can use with account with the with the web accounts, which allows you to pull data metadata from your website account automatically into the wallet. So basically, like when you open the wallet and you look at your all your slash tags accounts, you'll basically automatically authenticate in the background with the website and you'll pull updates from your accounts into the wallet. And so you'll be able to see, say, for example, like your Bitfinex balance inside of your Bitcoin wallet um, without having to actually visit the Bitfinex website. Um, and any website will be able to do you know, something like this. Like you can choose one specific primary metadata that will be highlighted in, your, in the wallet for that account. And then so this way you can see an update from you know, the most important update from all your different web accounts. But yeah, that's that's the overview on what's unique about the wallet. There are a few other odds and ends that we could probably get into as far as features, but most wallets have most features these days. So there's not a lot of unique stuff left outside of what I've told you. Um, so that, that covers, we have block tank server, we have the wallet, we have the slash tags protocol, which we could talk about more. Um, and then we have the web platforms that we're building using slash tags and, and Bitcoin and Lightning. Um, so in, in 2022, we're actually going to be continuing to add more use cases to the slash tags protocol to keep fleshing it out until we have the full web of trust, reputation capabilities, and all the other stuff that we've talked about with slash tags to make it more powerful and, and a solution for the web by pairing it with the hypercore protocol, <laughs> which is a decentralized storage protocol, sort of like BitTorrent. Um, and so our plan is once we flesh out all the use cases with that, we're going to make two um, web platforms that basically show how you could apply slash tags to create web communities. And so first, we're going to make a uh, publishing platform. So this way you can combine Hypercore with slash tags to be able to basically uh, serve your own data and, and monetize your own data and content. Um, and you'll be able to do this with anybody on the slash tags network. And then later in the year, we'll um, start creating our uh, decentralized social media solution using slash tags as well. So 
that's the whole stack for the moment. There, there are a few other odds and ends in there. I probably left out, but they're they're kind of too early. We also have uh, the Biz Podcast, which is a podcast that I do, um, where we uh, have a crowd wall theme, where basically people have to pay to unlock it, and once it's unlocked, it's free for everyone. Yeah, I saw that. That's actually an interesting model for uh, for Lightning Podcast. I think it's really cool. Um, just on the wallet, is is the wallet going to be available in the U.S. as well? Or is the wallet that... will be available everywhere. It just any services that are provided won't be available in the U.S. So, for example, you'd be able to use the wallet without any problems until you tried to purchase a channel. If you tried to purchase a channel, you won't be able to. That, that feature won't be available in the U.S. Okay, sounds good. So. I've heard you talk a lot about a self-sovereign economy, this idea. And, um, you know, Bitcoiners more generally talk a lot about being a sovereign individual. How How is Synonym's product kind of like making this transition from sovereign individual to a self-sovereign economy? Are, are the two related? Um, what is the difference between just being a sovereign individual and having an entire self-sovereign economy? I mean, I think you kind of have to, you kind of have to accept that it's the same thing. Um, <clears throat> a self-sovereign individual would be, and if everybody was in the economy was a self-sovereign individual, now you have a self-sovereign economy, right? Like all these like independent, you know, people somehow have to just still do business together and have an economy. And so I think self calling it self-sovereign is mostly just addressing, uh, I guess with assets and, and, and the networks, you're addressing like that you're you're the one establishing permissions that you know you're everything is user centric. So if it starts with you, it starts with the user instead of starting from you know Facebook or Google, um, then the web kind of will be more self sovereign in design naturally because you're hosting your own data, you're deciding who gets access to your data, you're deciding who gets access to which versions of you know your own personalities or, or accounts that you have or different identities that you use on the internet for different reasons. Um, and so self, a self-sovereign economy would just be, you know, everybody operating in a way that didn't require um, central authorities. Um, that would probably be the biggest thing. Um, but I think of it more uh, in the context of we came up with this concept called the atomic economy. And so I don't I don't typically say self-sovereign economy so much as self-sovereignty being a goal. And then uh, the atomic economy is just basically a concept where we're, we're kind of giving a name to all the things that we're combining to complete this vision. And so that would be basically be taking the concept of a circular economy. And the main concept of a circular economy is just to minimize conversion. Basically, you want to be converting value the least amount of times. You want to have the most efficiency where you're just kind of recycling assets instead, you know, and you're not having to convert things very often. Um, so it's about conversion and, and efficiency. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So you can combine this concept of a circular economy with the concept of a web of trust and the concept of uh, basically a decentralized storage system. And so the, the web of trust is a way for you to attach reputation and metadata to everything in this kind of self-sovereign economy, this digital economy. So now you have a circular economy, you have the efficiency, everything being very relative, and localized and, and appropriate. And then you have the web of trust aspect for basically making everything semantically accurate and appropriate and also for permissioning, you know, get the access to the data. 
Um, and then you combine this with uh, with Hypercore, which is what we're choosing for the storage solution, which is basically just a way to add features like BitTorrent, where you have swarming and you have uh, the file system is basically based on an append-only log. So it sort of works a little bit like a blockchain, where you can only add things to it and you can prove the history and the integrity of, the, of past data. And so it's a way that you can have, you know, uh, integrity for your data, interoperability for your data, and redundancy for your data through the kind of model that BitTorrent uses, um, but on a more modernized network. So you combine these kinds of concepts where, you know, you can host your own data and you can have your data hosted in a way that other people can help you host it redundantly. You combine that with, you know, reputation systems and webs of trust for permissioning and, you know, semantics, and then you combine that with circular economy and Bitcoin for basically having this minimal amount of conversion and efficiency and relevance. Right. So would it be, would it be fair to say that today, most, most Bitcoiners live in this like sovereign individual world where they are, they have sovereignty over their savings and they can kind of like, they can kind of fulfill one component of an economy. And then this atomic economy, this, this circular economy is going to be able to fulfill kind of both sides where service providers and consumers can keep moving, moving Bitcoin back and forth and without having to transact between different tokens. Is that, is that roughly right? Sort of. Um, I mean, you're, you're basically describing circular economy. And I'm just trying to add a little more dimension to that. So basically, you know, yeah, you, you do want to minimize conversion. So you do want to basically create a situation where people can keep their assets in Bitcoin for as long as possible and convert it as infrequently as possible. But you also want to f find a way to like abstract things. And so they become relevant and appropriate and therefore efficient. Um, for example, you know, there's obviously a use case for people using stable coins. Um, you know, they, they've become very popular and very large and lots of money inside of stable coins. And we could talk for a while about the different reasons why people might use them, but it's obvious there is some sort of use case there. Um, but you don't, but that's a conversion, right? Like if you say, I'm going to use my Bitcoin to buy some tether, you know, now you're kind of, you're, you're chipping away at the circular economy concept, you know, you're adding an inefficiency. But that doesn't mean that's against the rules. It just means you have to have some sort of convenience reason for doing that or, you know, some specific use case. And and so the use cases with stable coins tend to be that people want more, uh, they're a higher time preference for volatility. And so they want basically their money, their purchasing power to not change much in the next, you know, month. Whereas Bitcoin volatility could change a lot in one month. It could change a lot in one day. And so I think that, you know, the idea with tokens um, within our ecosystem is, isn't meant to add more friction or add more inefficiency. What it's meant to actually do is uh, provide the minimum level of what we would call finance. Um, and what I, you know, when I was trying to model all this and, and design, you know, what would be necessary, one thing I definitely came up with and, uh, and another thing I observed while at BitRefill is that you're always going to have like this minimum need of finance where you're going to have to have trust and you're going to have to have some sort of reputation to basically, you know, leverage that trust to be able to use other people's money for speculating on growth. And so just the concept of an IOU is the simplest form of this, like basically just the idea that like, I can give you something and, and you can give that back to me and expect to get something in return, you know, like you can redeem it for something. And so this is like, 
we needed this minimum function to have any sort of economy and any sort of finance because you always need some sort of way for like, you know, Alice's coffee shop to open a second location, even if she doesn't quite have enough money, you know, and she doesn't want to wait, you know, 10 years to raise enough money to open a second location, she needs to borrow money or she needs somebody to trust her. So you need a reputation, you need some sort of a credit system, some sort of reputation system to establish yourself to let people trust you with their money. And you also need some kind of way to abstract value um, beyond Bitcoin. Um, so that way you can kind of define your own rules for that money. Um, and so you would, you know, with Tether, they're, they're providing stability as a service. Um, they're providing, you know, these, these exposure to the US dollar. Um, but basically you mentioned, like you mentioned earlier, you have the gift token concept, which is basically the same thing, except any business already issues gift cards and gift certificates and things like this. You just take that concept and you do it as a token and you do it on lightning. Now you have retail friendly lightning instant gift card bearer instruments. And so this basically makes it so you can have a safer aftermarket for the credits and makes it so you can still have this minimum level of finance within your economy, um, you know, for, for this convenience of speculating on growth. Do you think this, um, like putting stable coins on lightning is going to open up new use cases for stable coins that have not been explored yet? Like, for example, the, the gift token idea is one that I haven't seen explored very deeply in, in the kind of broader crypto space to date. Do you think that opens up a new possibility for what stable coins can do? I mean, I, I don't know that it's a new possibility so much as um, opening people's minds to what was always possible and refocusing people's attention to the actual utility of utility tokens instead of the kind of abstract uh, speculation of tokens. You know, like so far, tokens history has been mostly about ICOs, DeFi, NFTs. It's all about these imaginary values, the sentimental value people have for these tokens and not any actual real redeemable value. Um, and, and so I'm trying to focus on the opposite. I'm trying to say the only, like, if we're going to use tokens, they're going to have to be useful. <laughs> and, and if they're for them to be useful, they have to be defined somehow. They have to have some sort of reputation attached to them and some sort of definition attached to them from the issuer of what they're redeemable for. And if you don't do that with a token, you're basically scamming. Right. Okay. So yeah, you mentioned credit. You mentioned gift tokens. Are there any other verticals or, or spaces you think that stable coins could enter into on in this kind of like atomic economy? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to promote them so much as admit that they have crossed my mind. Um, I think that like, you know, a few years ago, we had some people that were like trying to say tokenize everything. And the way that they interpreted this was, you know, to tokenize, you know, all these abstract bullshit ideas, you know what I mean? Like DeFi tokens, which are just inflated tokens to, to inflate more tokens and just print more tokens, um, ICOs, et cetera. Um, sorry, what was the original question? I lost my train of thought. Are there any other kind of like verticals you see that the atomic economy would use stable points for? Um, so I would say... If you think of an economy, an atomic economy, where everybody is doing the minimal amount of conversion, right? That means that they're always trading exactly what they want for exactly what the other person wants. 
And that could mean abstracting everything. In other words, you could, you could be tokenizing everything. You could say, okay, I want a hamburger. And so I'm going to buy a hamburger token. And then I'm going to go somewhere and redeem that hamburger token. Or I want a, um, a you know, a bushel of, of twigs, you know, to start a campfire. Um, and I, there might be like twig tokens that represent twigs and I go buy them and then somewhere they get redeemed for twigs. In so basically it's like stable coins, except stable, anything that, you know, you're willing to trust the issuer for. And so like, if I am a, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a widget supplier, I might give you widget tokens and you might say, okay, I want some widgets. And that just a way to like basically issue credit on your reputation that represents a specific redeemable thing. And then this person basically is trusting you to know that if they ever need that thing, they can redeem this token for that thing. And so in an economy where everything can be represented by a token in some trusted way, and you can measure trust using reputation systems, you can pretty much abstract anything into a token if you really want to. Um, I don't know if that's the best outcome um, or if that's the best design for everything, because there are some other limitations with tokens. Like you, you only really want to do them for things that are like a high in quantity. You don't really want to do NFT things on chain because NFTs don't really scale on chain. So you don't want them. You don't want to be too many tokens. You don't want to be a token for like every individual Apple. But if you could do Apple tokens, you know, just as a general thing, that would be more useful. Okay, so how how do you think people will decide whether or not something should have a token or can be expressed through Bitcoin or or just a stable coin? I mean, it depends on what your motives are. I mean, you could literally decide to issue anything as a token if you really wanted to. I'm not saying I would recommend that, but um, I would like to think that the things that will get tokens first will be the things that can exhibit the most utility as tokens. Um, and so, you know, that's why we see right now the U.S. dollar as being the most popular one. And my guess would be the next most popular one would probably be something like gift tokens, which are just very similar to stable coins, except they're only redeemable for whatever that specific business provides. Um, but there's still, you know, it's still a business issuing credit on their reputation into a token format. Um, yeah. So, so imagine, imagine you or I 10 years from now. Uh, we, we have our, our, our wallet and it's got all these tokens in it. What would I have other, I have Bitcoin and I have maybe stable coins in, in us dollars. Um, what other kinds of tokens do I have? Do I have a token representing some, you know, like my, my heating bill, my, my rent payments, my, some of the like uh, twigs that I want to buy or some, some, you know, Amazon gift card is, is that can be represented by a token. Can we, do you have any kind of like applications that you see this is going to be immediately useful for, like for a, you know, for, for me a decade from now, what am I going to be, what are some of my tokens going to look like? I mean, the, like I said, I think the most likely uh, first scenario is going to be stuff like gift cards. Um, mm. Like that, that's kind of like, like, just take what you already do now. What types of money do you have now? You know, and it's, you're probably going to find that you have like, 
dollars that are in credit cards, dollars that are in bank accounts, dollars that are in PayPal. And these are all different types of money, right? Um, then you have Bitcoin, then maybe you have stable coins, but you have e each of these different custodians, like, it's kind of like a different type of money. And so if you have different types of money, you could see, you could ask yourself, well, could I, could I make use of this if it were tokenized instead? Um, I'm not trying to be here to like promote tokenizing everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to say that basically, I think that as a minimum format, you know, for finance, we need IOUs. And if these IOUs are also bare instruments, which means tokens, you know, on a blockchain, then they have a lot more utility as a format, as a bare instrument. Because as bearer instruments, they can have aftermarkets, they can have order books, they can, you know, they can have free flowing, you know, free market as a bearer instrument. And this way, the only thing you're trusting the issuer for is redemption. And you don't have to trust the issuer for transacting. You can be basically like, if I buy a gift token from a vendor, um, I can sell it to you without involving the vendor. Mm, okay, makes sense. So yeah, like if, if I wanted to sell my gift cards today, I can't really do it. If I want to sell my like airline miles or something today, I can't really do it. Is that, that right? Kind of so the airline idea? miles would be another one. Airline miles could be something interesting for tokens. Um, energy could be something in interesting for tokens. Um, you know, anything that you use a lot of that you pay for regularly. Um, that could be, you know, one way to look at it. But for the moment, my main interest is first just getting Tether on Lightning um, and then seeing if we can get some people to do some, you know, gift token examples or other kind of, you know, re you know fixed redemption token examples. And we were talking to a few people about different uh, ideas that they might want to do. But my hope is to have, you know, two or three different tokens ready um, when we launch the wallet in the spring. Right. And as you said, an important part of this is that it's a bearer asset and this is like that self-custody. Um, what do you think some of the limitations are right now? Or what do you think are the issues that still need to be solved to enable anyone to take self-custody of their assets? Like even today, I, I still think the, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's out of a lack of interest or maybe it's out of like a lack of technical understanding. But I think there's there's still a large portion of the world that can't or won't or doesn't want to take custody for one reason or another. Do you have a sense for like what what some of those ideas uh, issues are right now, and then what what you guys are hoping to to solve? Um, as far as like cust I mean, we're, we're very anti you know custodial services. Um, we're doing our best. Even with just data, like we do our best not to hold any data for our users. We haven't done any email signups yet. We're debating whether to even do that um, because I just don't want to hold other people's assets. Um, I don't want to hold your Bitcoin. I don't want to hold your personal identifying information, any of that stuff. Um, so that's why the wallet is non-custodial. That's why even with the Lightning solution, it won't be custodial. Um, you'll be able to hold your own keys for everything. Um, as far as some of the challenges, I would say... I don't know, probably a couple of different ways to look at it, but one of them would be, let's take the, the honest worst one, which is you can't like force somebody to change their behavior to be more responsible. Um, the only things that, you know, usually pain is what makes people become more responsible. And so it's kind of like for the people that are too lazy or too intimidated to hold their own keys or, you know, they want to, they'd, they'd rather trust, you know, some entity. Um, that's okay. 
uh, some people will end up having to trust custodians anyway. Bitcoin can't scale to, to have everybody on the planet holding their own keys. It just can't. It can't physically do it. Um, so it, some people will have to be um, in a custodial situation. And in those cases, I think that, that it's good that we are making um, the web of trust and reputation systems. So this way you can like, you know, have some sort of uh, mutual history that you can track with people that you trust about these entities. And so you can decide which ones are reputable and which ones to trust with, with, with custodial, you know, custodying your assets. But generally speaking, that's one thing. It's just, there's no... If you aren't feeling pain, there's no incentive to get you to start self doing self custody. You know what I mean? You have to actually lose your Bitcoin. You know that 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 exchange has to get hacked, or you know that money has to get seized by the government or something like this for you to learn the actual value of being able to hold your own Bitcoin. Um, then I guess you could say like some of it is user experience stuff, and some of that could be better. But this is just always true. It's not it's not my favorite way to look at it because like software is just always getting better um, and technology is just always advancing. And so it's, it's unfair to say the user experience sucks or, or that's what's hold like that there's actually something holding us back. I actually think Bitcoin is really easy to use. And I think it's, a, I think that people's complaints are like obnoxious. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, I just don't think it's that hard to download Bitcoin core and run it. Like it's, 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 I don't think it's that hard to figure out, like if I'm going to send somebody money, I have to have, an address to send it to like these things are not hard concepts like for people that learned email and learned how to use web browsers like i just don't think bitcoin is hard at all um i think the the idea of holding your own assets digitally um even as a seed phrase or physically or however you back it up um it is a little scary um to think that like if you, have, if you have your life savings in Bitcoin and the only thing like stopping you from losing it is you, like you can't hold anybody else responsible. There's no bank. There's no, you know, and, and I think the thing that people don't really realize with Bitcoin is you don't have that protection with Coinbase either. You don't have that protection with the exchange either. Like a lot of people feel like, oh, if I hold it myself, I'll lose it. But the thing is, if Coinbase loses it, you're never going to get it back. Like, you know, you can try to take them, look, look at Mt. Gox, like Mt. Gox is still in court trying to get that money out. And how many years ago was that? Like, imagine if it happens, like that, something like that happens again. Like if you lose your, your Bitcoin on Coinbase, like they aren't going to like reimburse your Bitcoin. They'll end up giving you at best some dollar value for your Bitcoin on the day it was stolen or, you know, or, or nothing because there's no like unlimited supply of Bitcoin. They can't just print more and reimburse you with it. Like, and so when you when you lose, if Coinbase ever gets hacked and say they lose like a hundred thousand Bitcoin or something, like that is a lot of liquidity gone, and they will not be able to just repurchase those Bitcoin to make people whole again. It like the price would just skyrocket. So I just I think that you definitely want to avoid using custodians. You definitely want to try to self custody yourself. But you also need to like, you know, in, if you're making products, you need to accept that some people will will use custodians and some people um, will prefer them even. And some people have to use them if you want everybody actually using Bitcoin. Right. So how far do you think we can push from from going from like, I guess, today or, or 10 years ago, maybe before before Bitcoin became a thing, it, it was basically everything is is custodial. Right. Like you had all your money is in a bank, all your data is on Facebook. Um, how far can we push that towards the self custody 
realistically. Like you said, it, it can't scale to everyone. There's no way every single person on earth is going to hold their own keys. How far can we push that? Uh, what are the limiting factors there? Um, the main limiting factor is that um, Bitcoin itself can't scale to have billions of people holding their own Bitcoin keys. Um, is it the base blockchain? Yeah, yeah. There's actually there's not enough Bitcoin, and not you basically can't create enough UTXOs with Bitcoin inside of them to have everybody on Earth holding their own keys. So the main problem, there are a few problems related to this, but the the kind of core one is Bitcoin needs a way to abstract accounts from UTXOs. I don't know if it's actually possible. Um, I know that it's been a topic uh, with some people and. I, I've heard that like GMAX or some people have had some ideas about a solution. I don't know if it's possible, but in the end, if it is possible, there will basically be some sort of game that it creates with some sort of trade-offs, sort of like how lightning works. Like the lightning network works with this punishment mechanism where you create transactions mutually, but in order to keep each other honest, you can submit those transactions to the chain at any time. And if you submit an old one, the other counterparty has to notice and punish you if you submit the wrong state, the wrong, like the wrong transaction. And so if you do this, if you try to make some kind of design for having multiple accounts in one UTXO, it will start having problems like this. Um, and, and you can actually already see this with how they want to do like multi-party channels in Lightning. Multi-party channels, If you once you start having three or more people inside of a channel, you get these weird games. You have more you need more punishment mechanisms. You need more ways to basically resolve the situation when there's not consensus. And so you, you basically introduce these new kind of you know, game, the, game theoretical consensus problems when you start abstracting accounts into UTXOs. So even if it can be done, I think that it still won't be, it won't be a perfect solution. It will be like semi-trusted. And so the idea is, can we abstract accounts from UTXOs in a way that's still better than trusting a custodian outright? Okay, makes sense. Um, I want to I want to move to a uh, topic of slash tags because I know this is a protocol you guys are working on. Um, I don't fully understand it, and I think a lot of listeners also don't. Um, so, talk to me about like how is this? This kind of goes beyond the confines of the Lightning Network, I think, right? Like this is a, a different protocol. How does it work? High level. Sure. It has pretty much nothing to do with the Lightning Network. Um, I would say that, that there are some things in Lightning Network that have tried to accomplish similar use cases from within the Lightning Network, but generally it hasn't had anything to do with the Lightning Network. Um, slash tags, the simplest way to put it, is just a method for using key pairs and metadata for everything. And so that, that's like the simplest way to put it. It's just a way of saying, instead of using like usernames and passwords or emails and passwords for, for accounts and for authenticating with people on networks, you use key pairs instead. And so you represent yourself, you're always representing yourself as a key and you're always basically attesting things and doing things in an authenticated way from the start. And this is kind of one of the, I don't want to say holy grail problems, but it's one of the biggest problems with the internet is that we didn't. St if we had started this way, where everybody was just always representing themselves as keys, we would. This problem would have been solved a long time ago. But we haven't been able to kind of like convert people to using them. We've had GPGK, GPG keys, and webs of trust and these concepts for a long time. Um, but now is the first time where we have an actual kind of uh, quantity of people that are actually using apps to manage keys their Bitcoin keys. 
And so now I see this as the first time where we can actually, you know, create user experiences for keys where we couldn't before, because now people already have a key manager. And so we're trying to show how you can use a Bitcoin wallet as a key manager in the abstract for any type of key. And so slash tags is just basically a way of applying this method saying, okay, I want to use key pairs for everything. I want this to be how my accounts work. I want it to be how I communicate with you. I want it to be how I make an account on Twitter, et cetera. Um, and as it turns out to do this in a uh, useful way, the other minimum thing that we needed to include is this ability, this ability to attach a schema to keys. And a schema is just basically just a map of like how you form data about data. <laughs> so it's like it's like a metadata map, basically. So like, it's just weird to say, okay, if I'm communicating with you on slash tags, I, I tell you my key, you tell me your key, we will sign messages, you know, from each other to prove that we own those keys. And now we're, we have this kind of encrypted channel together where I know who you are by key and you know I, I am by key. But when we want to share data with each other, like say I want to uh, add you to a reputation system, I need to tell you and others what that reputation, how, what the design of that data is. And you say, okay, here are all the fields of my reputation system, like the, you know, the name, reliability, price, whatever, you know, abstract methods I want to measure about a key. And so now I can share that system with you. I can say, okay, here is my reputation system schema. And here is the metadata that I have applied to your key. And it's all signed by me as attestations. So, so now you can know, now you can show a proof that I tested that this is my rating of you. And these proofs can be either, you know, I can share them with people that I trust. You can share them with people that, that you trust. And you can basically use these schemas and these webs of trust to create these like private interoperable networks that are defined in the abstract. So you can basically say like, this is a network made out of um, this reputation system, or this is a network made out of this one schema question. It could be like, is John, is John an asshole or is this person an asshole network? And everybody in that network all uses the, is this person an asshole schema and responds yes or no and signs it. And so now everybody in this network knows whether or not everybody else thinks who, who they think is an asshole and who isn't, you know? Um, and, and so you can use this as a way of like permissioning of weighting data. Um, it's basically a way to put like, you take the, the, the pieces of a search algorithm and you put them into the user's hands and they, they predefine them as a templated, you know, schema. And this templated schema effectively works like a, a filtering mechanism, almost like a, a inverse search. Um, and so you can use these, you use these key pairs with these schemas to basically establish anything. Any, any abstract network paradigm that you would want to. And so we're going, we want to use this to basically build a new web, a new social economy, so people can pair up with each other and find each other in this kind of uh, additive network, web, web of trust environment, where you're filtering things and you're, you're, you're choosing all the permissions from the user first um, to kind of fix the web, basically. And so this, this system of keys, is it dependent at all on Bitcoin? No. Um, so we use, we're using the, the elliptic curve, the same elliptic curve that Bitcoin uses, again, just so we can store it in the same way that we store Bitcoin keys. You can literally use the same seed to generate addresses if you want to um, for your Bitcoin and for your, your slash tags accounts. But it doesn't, slash tags does not use the blockchain at all. 
It just just generates keys. And technically, you could make it support other key pairs as well. Um, so you could you could have it be like libsecp the 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 Bitcoin curve. You could have it also support you know ed two one five nine or whatever. Or there are these other popular curves, and you could add support for them you know between users and between peers. But remember, you know you need every counterparty to support that curve if you want to use another curve. And so we're just gravitating towards Bitcoin since it's already the most popular key pair, the most popular curve right now where people are actually managing keys. Mm, okay. And then so can you explain a bit more in depth about how the web of trust works? You mentioned it a couple of times. How, how does this solve some of the problems that we see on the web today? Yeah. I'd love a, a more like in-depth explanation of, of how it works. The easiest way to kind of get an idea of Web of Trust is after after you listen, listeners, after you listen to this, uh, search Google for the Bitcoin OTC Web of Trust. It's an existing Web of Trust, um, and it's like the simplest form of a Web of Trust so you can understand it. Basically, the way it works is is a centralized database. And they publish the database publicly every time it's updated. And so you go to, you still have to trust it, but so it's a, it's a pr more primitive design than what we're, what we're using. We're using append only logs with hypercore. So you can't change the history. Um, so there's some integrity to the data here. Whereas this, this example I'm telling you about the Bitcoin OTC web of trust, this was how Bitcoiners used, um, did trades before the exchanges even existed. And so they would they would hop on IRC and they would basically uh, authenticate themselves with a bot in, I, in the IRC chat. Um, and they would authenticate themselves by signing a message showing they had the key that they, they represented themselves as. And so whenever somebody would like do a trade, you know, over the Internet, they would rate each other, you know, uh, you know whether the trade is successful or how, how well the trade went. And the way the rating system basically works is this database, this, this Bitcoin OTC level of trust, it has a rating system from minus 10 to plus 10 as a score, and you can leave a comment. And so the way it works is anybody that you have positively rated, there's a transitive positive rating for anybody that they have positively rated. And the same thing for negatively. So basically the people, if I trust you and I give you a 10, now all the people that you have given a 10, I can weight them as well. And I can say, okay, so all the people that you trust, I'm now going to trust 20% of that amount. And so now they all have you know, two points with me, even though I've never done business with them. And you can basically use Web of Trust as this kind of filtering mechanism for quality, basically by using confidence as a distance. So you can say, okay, like, my confidence in this person's data or this person you know, doing business with this person, but you can, you can form these webs of trust using any schema, right? So you can now have, you can have the Bitcoin OTC web of trust schema. You can have the Rotten Tomatoes, you know, movie review schema. You can have, you know, any type of schema you want to, and you can combine them and make like meta schemas. And you can just choose the weightings for all of these every time you weight them. And so this is basically a way for you to like sort the web and sort, you know, through your peers using any abstraction method that you want to. So the web of trust could be something as simple as, you know, a trading rating system for people trying to do Bitcoin trades like peer to peer, 
or it could be a movie rating system. It could be just a permissioning system for private networks, like who's VIP, who gets access, who doesn't, who's family, who's an employee, any type of permissioning system that you wanted to do and any type of data sorting or matching that you wanted to do. That's really cool. Um, now, because you can, I guess, generate these keys as many times as you want or as, as needed, is there an issue with, does it ever present an issue if, if I create a thousand different keys and now I'm a thousand different people or I'm like, I'm no longer, you, you no longer know that it's only me and it could be, it could be one of my other, like my identity can change, right? Is that, is that an issue at all? Um, it depends on what you mean by issue. Um, I would call it an advantage. Um, I would say you want to have as many keys as possible because you want to try to silo your behaviors as much as possible. Sort of like you want to avoid, you know, if you're being as safe as possible, you want to use a different email address for every website account that you make because you don't want to lose, you know, your data to one and then have somebody else hack into your like main email, right? And so, you know, security practices, if you were diligent, you would use a different email and a different password for every single website account. Well, key pairs already force you and allow you to do that in a much more efficient way, um, especially if you're like automatically you know, using a key manager app to create your accounts. You can basically from the start always be putting something in your password manager, you know, and not having to worry about keeping your password manager up to date later because it's the only way that you can make accounts. You have to make a key. You have to assign, you know, a name to that key for that account. And then if you want to, you could separately, you know, you could use the same the same key for multiple accounts if you really wanted to. That would be the only reason you would want to do that is to kind of basically combine reputations and say, okay, I want to make sure that people know this is me here and here because I need the, the reputational benefit of them knowing that it's me. But if there's no reputational benefit to you, you want to keep these accounts separate. So in, in an example of like, if I... If I'm looking for an Uber driver and I want to know their reputation, I I don't want them to be able to like delete their history and kind of like start over as a new reputation. I want to know that they're a bad driver because they probably haven't changed and turned into a good driver when they changed their you know key pair and, and they started this new reputation system, right? So uh, that's kind of what I mean as like, is this an issue that see people can just like well, generate no, the, the, the issue we have to understand is if you are a new user, you have no reputation. So you are, you are, you're, you're a non-person. <laughs> and so if you're on Uber and you use a, a new key, you make a thousand keys, you're a thousand nobodies and nobody will mm -hmm. trust you and nobody will, you know, you'll get the worst rate and nobody, you know, you'll basically be starting from zero. But if you use a key that you've done 500 successful rides with it, and gotten 500 ratings from different slash tags users all happy with your service well now you're cooking right now if you mm -hmm. if you want to make another key because i don't know you got drunk and got in an accident and now your uber career is ruined you either have to you, you could decide to use your old one and say okay i'm going to rebuild my reputation as this person or you could just start over you know and say I, i'm a nobody again um and, and that's kind of the idea with a reputation system is you want to keep things, you know, that are that don't require your your kind of docs identity. You want to keep those separate and siloed off because you don't want to like hurt your reputation for unless you really like you know made that decision consciously. 
And so you, you know, you, you have to be able to, but you also need the uh, way to start over if you do fuck up. And so I, I think that this is a good alternative where you basically say, okay, like, yeah, you know, reputate the way reputation just as a, a physical thing, like you're always going to be able to cash out on your reputation. Like if you, if you garner the trust of many people, you can exploit that trust at some point. That's just the way the world works. Um, but at least in this case, you will have consequences. You know what I mean? Like you, they won't be going to jail or getting killed. They will simply be now that that reputation is burned and now you have to build a new one. Right. Okay. So then if I, if I mess up as an Uber driver, I, I go back to being the nobody who, who in this context would actually have like a really questionable reputation because I haven't driven anyone. On right. This new right. Reputation, right. It's like the difference between like, it improves the, the idea is it improves something like a like a rating system like for example if you go to like amazon and you look at the ratings for a given item a lot of them these days are spammed you have like you know they, they'll hire a third world country or somebody you know in china or india or something like this and they'll just put a bunch of like rudimentary worded you know caveman sounding like positive reviews and you'll have like a thousand positive reviews and you're like okay like this is some some product that probably has never even sold a thousand ever. And we have a thousand positive reviews of the, all these worthless spam accounts with web of trust, with slash tags, you would actually be able to weight people's. And so you would basically, if, 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 uh, if, if 990 of the reviews were all from, you know, nobody accounts, non-persons, you just wouldn't even weight them. You wouldn't consider them to be reviews at all. You would say, I only want to see reviews from people that have some weight with me. Right. So you're kind of multiplying by the reputation, like a thousand reviews from people with a zero reputation score is nothing. It's not, yeah, it's not it's gonna, just zero, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but a, a thousand reviews of people with a 10 or 20 or 50 reputation score, it starts to add up and it starts or, to, or at least people that like maybe uh, a friend of a friend trusts them. You know what I mean? You can mm -hmm. have some confidence based off maybe cause you can't know everybody. Right. And you do want yeah. to have as many reviews as possible. So you would basically adjust your threshold to how much to get enough information that you needed. You would never adjust it to total spam because total spam is just spam. It's worthless, it's just manipulative. But you but you could have some threshold where you say like, I don't know, I only want to look at reviews for people that uh, have, have, have proven some form of anti-spam measure. That even that could be the minimum. It could be like this person has a phone number or this person has uh, a unique UTXO on the Bitcoin blockchain. You know, like just something that proves that they're, you know, have some proof of work behind them. Right. Okay. So now we've talked about Web of Trust and we've kind of danced around the topic of like this next iteration of the web. I have to ask, there was a debate on Twitter yesterday about Web3. I, I want to hear your take on it. And actually, before you even provide your, your take on, on the conversation, I want to know what Web3 means to you. Is that something that is, can, it, can Web3 exist on Bitcoin? Do you define it as the next generation of the web? What does Web3 mean to you first? I mean, I think it's all the same question as far as I'm concerned. Like, and, but I am a little bit conflicted because what Web3 means to me, Web3, like, Ethereum has been very good at coming up with narratives for their latest trend. 
you know, like with ICOs and world computers and DeFi's and NFTs and Web threes and all these things, they've always find really nice marketers kind of captivate people to be interested in this technology. But mostly, it's because of the the opportunity to get rich fast and to, to you know, take on high risk. Um, with the Web three stuff, like I'm conflicted because I didn't know. I heard of Web three outside of the context of blockchains, and so I always thought of it as Web three was about the semantic web and the, the concepts of semantic web, much more related to what we're doing with slash tags. Um, uh, the slash tags is another, you know, from another perspective, you can describe it as a way to try to solve the semantic web problems that we've had in the past and solving, you know, using keys as accounts at the same time. Um, but web three, you know, I think it's a, it's a nice term. Um, you know, to, to get people to understand that the web is evolving and to give them a cue for that they might want to try something new or change the way they use the web. Um, web 3 is an easy delivery mechanism. You can say, look, Web 3 means you got to hold your own keys. So Web 3 means, you know, you have to use slash tags and you have to not share your email address with everybody. And you know what I mean? Like Web 3 being means being more private or keeping a copy of your own data or hosting your own server. Like it means all these kinds of self-sovereign things. But the problem is, is that it, the, the term has been like mostly co-opted by shitcoins and shitcoin VCs to mean web use cases plus blockchain. And that is the part like I definitely don't agree with. It's like the opposite of what we're doing. Like, and yesterday I even tried replying to one of the tweets with that Kelsey Hightower guy from Google who's been like um, kind of orbiting around Bitcoin for the past week or two. Um, I tried to tell him, like, he wanted an example of doing Web3 without without blockchain. And so I pointed him to our company and he's like, it says Bitcoin right in the headline. And I'm like, yes, it does. But we're doing both. We're showing how you can do, you know, the Web3 use cases without a blockchain. But we're pairing these use cases with Bitcoin to show how the whole, you know, you don't need to do any of the shitcoin nonsense. Like you can have the, the crypto payment method and you can have the Web3 use cases just without the being dependent on the blockchain and just using Bitcoin only for payments. Um, and so, but it's really hard to portray these subtleties to people, especially when they have biases, when they have ignorance, when they have, you know, they, they have all these things pulling them in different directions other than like the truth. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but just generally, I wish we could take the name back. I wish we could say, okay, web three shit coins are garbage. But Web3 as a concept is interesting because it's just basically a way of taking the web back. And a lot of people like to say like Web3 is basically Web1, web, web and I kind of agree with that also. But I just think that technology has evolved since in the past, you know, in the past few decades. The technology has come to a nice place where I think it, it is a good time to reassess the semantic web problem, to reassess you know, the web of trust uh, design pattern to reassess using key pairs as accounts to take all these things and say, hey, you know what? We have a nice little stack here that we can combine and actually create this user experience where if people just make a little bit of effort, they can actually use the web in the way they always should have been using the web. Are there any applications in particular that you're excited about in this concept of Web3 or this next iteration of the web? I mean, I'll be honest and say my, my instinctive answer is I'm excited about all, all of our applications 
um, <laughs> including the you know maybe ones we want to build after we finish these. And so I, I am very excited about slash tags. I'm very excited about our wallet. Um, I'm very excited about the web platforms that we're going to be building in 2022. Um, as far as projects or, or apps that aren't ours, um, I'm still I'm still very excited about Lightning Network. Um, I still would love to find a way to get it to be more homogenous um, and more cooperative across implementations and things like this. But I'm starting to realize that I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, that that there's probably fundamental reasons that they have to be competitive. Um, it's just never going to be that way. But it would be nice. I am excited. I'm excited about DLCs um, and what people like Shortbits are doing, and those guys are great. Um, so I'm excited to be able to maybe play with that. Um, I'm also excited about mesh networks, which is something I, I'm remaining a little bit too ignorant on, but I would like to maybe learn more about in the next year or two um, to see if there are ways, because I think that's another aspect for self-sovereignty is um, I'm really worried that all this COVID pass stuff is going to end up leading to uh, needing a pass to get onto the internet. And if that becomes true, the only way to be self-sovereign will be to make our own internet. <laughs> um, and you know, making our own web is hard enough, but making our own internet, you know, I think probably mesh networks is the only way to achieve that. Really interesting. Um, on the topic of Lightning, I, I want to dig into the, uh, the different implementation problem that you see right now. I don't know much about it. I would love to hear kind of your, your high-level take on what do you think the issue with having all these different implementations is today and how to go about solving it. What do I think the issue is with all the, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's an issue so much as there's a lot of redundant work. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity costs. Um, like everybody should make what they think they should make, you know, and if you have the resources to make it more power to you, I'm not going to like criticize that. Um, if you think you know the way and you have the best answer, you should try to do it. And if you can't get other people to do it with you, or you can't get other people to cooperate and they want to compete instead, that's just the way it is. Um, but the problem is that like all of these lightning implementations are coming from businesses. They're not nonprofit organizations, but there is a certain kind of culture to wanting them to be somewhat like Bitcoin core, you know, where it's like more of like a free open source software project. Um, and that's kind of not what it is like Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is definitely open technology, free, you know, permissionless for everyone. But Lightning is more like commercial technology, in my opinion. It's meant for businesses. And so if businesses are going to be the ones kind of innovating, you know, research and development, um, relying on this, if they're going to be the ones providing all the funding for that, they're going to end up being competitive, right? Like, how do you get everybody to cooperate on a, on a business plan? You, you can't really. Um, and so I think that that's part of the reason why you see the multiple, multiple implementations and them not really being that related um, and probably even more competitive in the future. But, um, you know, right now you have LND, which is the most popular, like in use. Um, most people are using LND, but LND doesn't focus on the app layer. They don't focus on supporting mobile and really none of the implementations do. Um, and so like, and then C Lightning is like, you know, they're not, they're also have the same kind of problems. They don't really have C Lightning for mobile. So you can't really do Lightning with C Lightning for mobile. Um, Async is doing its own thing separately and independently. Um, you have like other, you know, you have Omnibolt itself is technically a separate Lightning implementation. Um, and so that has its own kind of design differences to LND, even though it's a fork of LND. 
then you have like other projects like LNP and all these other ones. So it's like you have a lot of uh, basically could have a lightning implementation for each like favorite language that would be appropriate as well. Um, I think we'll probably end up seeing at some point a JavaScript lightning implementation. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know where it's all going to land. I don't know how to fix it for sure. Um, I would just say businesses have to keep finding business reasons to continue to develop out lightning and, you know, uh, get people to adopt their flavor of lightning. And that in the end, that's, that's how it will evolve. And that's how it will progress is whichever people are doing the best business on lightning will be the ones that probably purvey the, the standards and, and, uh, you know, push things forward development wise the most. Interesting. Do you think there is a path to someone or some group creating an implementation that does reflect kind of Bitcoin core and, and, and Bitcoin kind of blockchain implementations a little more than the business interest you mentioned? No, I, I don't see any reason for it. Um, you can have more than one lightning network. You can have sub networks within the lightning network. You can have certain features that certain nodes support and other ones don't. The, the fragmentation, in my opinion, is okay. Um, I'm not really a big fan of the concept of there being like a very, very complex lightning network where there's lots and lots of complex routing and lots and lots of like channels between miscellaneous nodes. I think lightning will evolve and just mostly be a lot of hubs connected to each other. And then each of those hubs has spokes of their users that frequently transact with them. So you'll see like exchanges as hubs, wallets as hubs, large e-commerce websites as hubs, and maybe a few like, you know, uh, LSPs and, and routing specialists as hubs. And that's about it. And everybody will be connected to like one, one to three hubs. And that will be how I think that will map out. Really interesting stuff. Do you think, okay, one, one more question I want to end off on this note is, are there any lightning apps or infrastructure tools or anything you're using today that you're really excited about that you, that you enjoy using that maybe other people on this, listening to this podcast haven't heard of yet? Um, I don't know. I would say mostly I just use lightning wallets to do lightning payments. Um, I'm not a big fan of the kind of fringe use cases of Lightning, like using it for chat. And like, I am a big fan of Sphinx chat as an app um, and as a concept, basically, you know, combining the ability to do Bitcoin and Lightning payments with chat. But I don't think that you need to be doing the chat over Lightning. And I don't like the idea of like putting the whole web onto Lightning specifically or the concept of, um, some apps are trying to like have this paradigm of where they're trying to sell a node to every user. And so they're like making partners with like these cloud node companies. And I just feel like that's a dead end. Um, it, it's an interesting, it's interesting and I hope that I'm wrong, but like, I think at best you're going to end up maybe signing up 2000 people and then that's it. Um, and that's kind of not really successful for an app, you know, um, you need a lot more people than that and scaling up a lot, a lot of nodes just so you can chat. I don't, I don't, just don't think that's a good model. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I learned a ton from this conversation. These are the kinds of conversations that after I finish, I realize how little I know about, about Bitcoin, about lightning. I, about Web3. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is great. I, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, thank you for taking the time out of your day. Um, where can people find more out about you and Synonym? So you can find me on Twitter as Bitcoin Error Log. 
Um, I'm also on Telegram on the same handle if you ever want to chat. Um, I have my own podcast called The Biz, which is at thebiz.pro. Um, the company website is synonym.to, synonym um, and the synonym Twitter is synonym underscore to. Um, and so if you go to any of those places, you'll be able to keep up with any news and updates about our products and, and the tech that we're building. Um, the podcast, I'll be recording a new episode for it next weekend or the weekend after. Um, yeah. And, and that's how you can find me. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time. And, uh, I'm excited to watch the next few months of synonym. Thanks so much for having me, man. All right, welcome to the lightning round. This is your opportunity to ask me any questions you have about the show, about past episodes, about whatever you want. Shoot me a message on a lightning podcasting app like Fountain, and I'll answer your questions on the show. Um, so in the last episode, I got a question in from at BTC Rich on Fountain. Um, at BTC Rich sent in uh, 1,238 sats as well as a comment and said, Hi, great show. Lightning is a game changer for Bitcoin. Love the square and cash app point in the show. That was episode seven uh, with Chris Hunter, if you have not uh, listened to that one yet. Uh, the question BTC Rich has is, what incentives do you think merchants and customers have to use Lightning over Visa and MasterCard when doing domestic payments in Western nations? Thanks, Richard. So this is a really good question. Um, that was one of the points that was covered in episode seven potential for Square and Cash App to kind of integrate Lightning into the uh, merchant side of their business. So all the merchants that currently can accept payments could eventually accept Bitcoin or Lightning, uh, Lightning payments. I think there's a few ways Square could unveil this. And I don't, know, I don't know what the right solution is. But one way is for Square to first say, Bitcoin is the, the innovation here and, and to enable merchants to instantly transfer their earnings into Bitcoin to kind of save in Bitcoin or to, to store their wealth in Bitcoin. Um, that doesn't necessarily require the Lightning Network. This could still be uh, a customer like me pays a merchant on Visa or on MasterCard and at the point of sale, once the merchant gets the money, Square could then swap it for Bitcoin in the back end. That could be a cool feature that I think would be valuable for merchants uh, that Square could launch. Um, another one, though, could be uh, just lightning transactions between customers and merchants in, in anywhere in the world. Um, and so instantly from day one, this feature could be put out everywhere. It wouldn't just be Western nations. It could be in any country um, and, and it would enable some cool things. So for one, you could, you could then say every product sold on Square, if purchased using a Lightning payment, maybe you save 5%, maybe you save 3%, whatever it is, right? Typically uh, card processing fees are 2.9% plus 30 cents. So if you're not gonna be paying that 2.9% plus 30 cents, uh, that was coming out of either the merchant's payment or Square's own pocket. So that now can be either sent back to the customer as a kind of a kickback for using Lightning. So there is a bit of a benefit there. Um, the benefit is much higher as payment values get smaller. So if it's a $100 payment, 2.9% plus 30 cents, 
is still roughly 3%, 3.3%. Um, if it is a $5 payment, or, or let's say it's a $3 payment, then 2.9% plus 30 cents, the 30 cents is already 10% of $3 plus 2.9%. So you're at 12.9%. You're so now all of a sudden, these, these tiny payments of $3, of $5, of $1, that, that kind of category of payments can be enabled on Square. And it can't be enabled anywhere else if Lightning, if Lightning uh, integrations exist. Um, so that, that I think is one of the interesting use cases that Square could unveil is that they could open up the floodgates for any merchant to sell items under $10. That whole space is untapped right now. There's very few places you can go online buying things that cost less than five or 10 bucks. So I think Square could do something really cool there. I don't know what the timeline would be. I don't know how quick Square could unveil something like this, but that's one of the interesting applications that I think could come out of this. Uh, if you guys have any other questions about today's episode or any episodes in the past, shoot me a message on a Lightning podcasting app, uh, and I can't wait to read them and share my thoughts on the next week's show.